Amen. So the oldest group of freshwater kids is making their way out of the room. Um, the rest of us can find our seats, and you can take your copy of God's Word, and you can turn in it to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. Remember that if you don't know where the book of Habakkuk is, it is completely okay for you to use the table of contents um, in the front of your Bible if you need to. We're going to be asking the question today, why does evil go unpunished? That's going to be page 785 in a pew Bible if you've got one of those close to you. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater, and um, uh, I get to preach here most Sundays in case somebody is uh, filling in for me. Our mission as a church is to help the people of our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. So if you are new here, we are ecstatic that you're here with us, and I'd love to meet you before you leave for the day. What we're talking about this morning, I can just about guarantee you that every single one of us have questioned before in our lives or maybe we have yearned for an answer from God, um, if not at just one point in our life, maybe several points in our life. We have wondered, why does it seem like God allows evil to go unpunished? We've, we've asked that ourselves. Why does God allow a world to exist where it feels like the bigger cheat you are and the better you are at deceiving other people, it feels like you're going to succeed? While the more honest you are, And the more genuine and compassionate you are, it feels like the more you're going to fail and be taken advantage of. Why does it seem like that's the world that we live in? Like, for example, the name Kenneth Lay may or may not ring a bell for you, but Kenneth Lay was the CEO of Enron. As I look around, some of you are too young to even remember Enron. But Enron was um, one of the biggest companies in the world in 2001. I think it was the single biggest energy company in the country. It dealt in natural gas and oil and electricity and the whole shebang. But in 2001, it came out that this huge company that everybody thought was a great investment had been employing some rather shady to say at the least, accounting practices. One of which was that they would acquire a piece of property, or let's say that they would acquire the drilling rights to a piece of property, and the company would estimate that, okay, over the next 10 years, this new piece of property is going to gain us, let's say, $100 million worth of revenue from this one piece of property. But rather than waiting to see that revenue come in, we're just going to go ahead and count all of that revenue right now. So um, they were totally cooking the books in a big way. It would be equivalent of you saying, okay, I'm just going to estimate that in 30 years I'm going to be making twice the salary that I currently make. So I'm going to right now start telling people that I make that amount of money. That's essentially what they were doing. So when it was found out, it led to the company going belly up. Enron was the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history at the time. And Kenneth Lay, it was really um, pointed to as being his fault. He was the CEO. And, you know, the sad part was just seeing the normal average person, you know, people in manufacturing or people in in, in middle management who were living on modest wages just like we are, who were about to retire, who had essentially their life savings wrapped up and were planning on using that money to retire, and they saw all of it completely disappear within really just a couple of months. And you know, I've never experienced that myself, but listening to their testimonies, those individuals that had lost every dime that they had, the only hope that they had was that one day they would see those men brought to justice, that they would see them charged and convicted and sentenced to prison. 
So on May 25th, 2006, that's exactly what happens. Kenneth Lay was indeed found guilty. He was scheduled to be sentenced a couple months later. But then on July 5th, Lay died of a heart attack while on vacation in Colorado. And not only did he die, but there's this long-standing legal precedence where if an individual is convicted of a crime and then they die before they're given an opportunity to appeal, um, the court system, the court erases the conviction. So not only did Kenneth Lay never spend any time in prison for wrecking the lives of tens of thousands of Enron employees, but technically the guy was never even found guilty for the crime. And when you're 65 or 70 years old and you're planning on retiring in six months and, and you'd saved sacrificially so that hopefully you can leave something for your kids or your grandkids or your spouse or maybe for your church after you passed away, only for this guy to, it seems like, kind of almost get away with all of this without no punishment whatsoever, I bet you could find yourself asking, God, how could you allow this guy to do this much harm and cause this much suffering and die before he could be paid that back? At least just a little bit. At least just a little bit. Be honest. We want to see people punished at least just a little bit. Well, before we even get into our scripture, I want you to know that 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 kind of yearning, that kind of questioning as to God, how can you allow the wicked to seem like they're getting away with what they're doing without being punished? That kind of questioning is something that the Bible tells us mankind has always had. We've always had that questioning. It's not something just that we struggle with now. It's something that the prophet Habakkuk was bringing up 2,600 years ago. Now, before we look at the text, let's remember what's going on in our text this morning. If you're new with us or if you've missed the last couple weeks, know that Habakkuk is what we refer to as a minor prophet. He's not a major prophet like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah or, or one of those guys. He's referred to as a minor prophet because his book is only three chapters long. But he's a man called by God to speak on God's behalf. And his book is actually primarily a discussion between God and Habakkuk. But Habakkuk comes into the picture most likely right after King Josiah has died. So remember, King Josiah was the king of Judah that brought about some of the most significant spiritual reforms that they'd ever seen. He was a great king who did everything that he could to point the people back to God and to really foster spiritual renewal in the country. But when he dies, chaos ensues. There's a power struggle The country spiritually and economically and politically is beginning to crumble. And Habakkuk the prophet looks out over this nation and he sees how the people have no regard for God and his glory. And last week we saw that God, we saw that Habakkuk is asking God, God, how long must I pray before you're going to do something about this? You'll remember the world is spinning out of control. King Josiah is dead. His replacements are a joke. God, you are being defamed by the people. How long do I have to pray before you answer me? And you remember that last week God responds and God says, Habakkuk, take a chill pill, dude. You know, I'm working. I am doing something. Don't deny that. As a matter of fact, as you look out and as you see your country is sinning against me and you yearn for them to be corrected and punished, what you don't know is, remember what we saw? There's this nation known as the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and in just a couple decades they're going to march into Judah and they're going to completely destroy the country. So I am answering your prayer. All of this is coming about, I promise you. All of that was last week. That was Habakkuk's first complaint and God's first response. But this week, we find that Habakkuk is not happy about what God has told him. 
So very similar to last week, here's how we'll do this this morning. We're going to first look at Habakkuk's complaint to God. We're going to discuss it a little bit, and then we'll come back and we'll see how God responds to Habakkuk's complaint, and then we'll prepare ourselves for next week when we come back together. So here is Habakkuk's complaint. If you're doing the fill-in thing and the outline, your worship guide, this is going to be your first blank. His complaint is this, God, how can you use wicked people to carry out your will? That's really Habakkuk's question or his complaint. God, how can you use wicked people to carry out your will? And there's a question behind the question in that why are you using wicked people to carry out your will? Why aren't you punishing them as well? Now, where do we see that? Well, let's read verses 12 through 17 to see this. What does it say in your copy of God's Word? Look at verse 12 in chapter 1 in Habakkuk. Habakkuk says to God, Are you not from everlasting, Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So let's pause right there and let's think about this. Remember the context because we can't allow ourselves to forget how this is unfolding. Last week, Habakkuk is looking out over his country. His people are rebelling against God. They're defaming God in so many different ways. And Habakkuk is angry. Habakkuk was praying and he's asking, God, how long are you going to make me pray before you answer my prayer? God, how long do I have to petition you? How long do I have to beg you before you punish your people, before you set them back on the straight and narrow? And God's response last week was, Habakkuk, I'm going to use an enemy nation, the nation of the Chaldeans, to punish my people. That was back in chapter 1, verse 6. Now Habakkuk is upset because in his eyes, that enemy nation, the Chaldeans, are more wicked than his own people. So Habakkuk is questioning, God, Your people, the people of Judah, are wicked. Don't get me wrong, Lord. We understand that they're wicked. I give you that. But the Chaldeans are even more wicked. So God, how can you use a more wicked people to punish a less wicked people? You see his predicament, right? We would raise this objection as well. And in that, he's questioning, God, why don't you just punish everybody? Why don't you just take care of them as well? So he's got all these different problems and these issues bouncing around in his head. In Habakkuk's mind, this shouldn't happen for at least five different reasons. I'm going to give you those reasons now if you're filling these in. We're going to go quickly, so make sure you you have your pen ready. But first, here's your first reason this shouldn't happen in Habakkuk's mind. First, because God is eternal. God is eternal. And we know that he's eternal because look at what he describes him as as being in verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting. So it's his way of saying, God, aren't you eternal? Shouldn't you being eternal mean that you're not going to act like this? Second, because God is in control. God is in control because look at the second half of verse 12. He says, oh Lord, you have ordained them as judgment and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So Habakkuk is not arguing that God is not in control. Habakkuk is indeed confirming that. Habakkuk is saying, God, you're in complete control of all of this. Why is this, act- why is this happening like this? Third, because God is holy. He's holy. Think about what it says in verse 13 
about God. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So he's saying, God, you are holy. You're perfect in every way. If you're holy and if you're perfect, how could you ever do this? How could you ever use a more wicked people to punish a less wicked people? Fourth, because God is just. He's a just God. He's not an unjust God. Look at the second half of verse 13 once again. He says, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So God, how can you sit back on your high horse and how can you look at this and say that it's okay for a more wicked person, a more wicked country, to conquer a less wicked country? God, that's not just. And fifth, because God has a created order. Where in verses 14 through 17, Habakkuk is basically saying, God, we're not animals. You're treating us like we're animals. You're treating us like we're just the the, the common run-of-the-mill varmint that is running around on the earth. But Lord, we're not animals. We're created in your image. We're more important than this. So all of this is to say that Habakkuk is upset. He's wondering, God, how can you use wicked people to punish your people who are less wicked? And if you remember, this is not an isolated instance in the Bible. I mean, this happens not consistently, but it happens several times, doesn't it? Do you remember the story of Joseph? God needs to get his people, the Israelites, to Egypt so that they can survive through a famine. How does God bring that about? God uses Joseph's wicked brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, which eventually takes all the people to Egypt. Do you remember Judas? Judas being the man that sold Jesus, sold the whereabouts of Jesus to the religious leaders, the one that God used We have to admit, God used Judas and used his wickedness to bring about the crucifixion of the Son of God so that we might be saved. So what you and I need to know is that as strange as it may feel to us, God has always worked and God has always acted like this. God has always used wicked people sometimes to carry out his will. Now I know that's a very short explanation of Habakkuk's complaint, but we're going to move on anyway because I want to make sure we've got plenty of time to discuss how God responds. So let's look now at how God responds. Remember, Habakkuk's complaint was, God, how can you use wicked people to carry out your will? And God's response is essentially this. I, as God, can do whatever I want to do. That's basically the way that God responds. I as God, can do whatever I want to do. Now, before we see that in the text, this week I was thankful to spend some time in Springfield at a conference. And I'm grateful that the church allows me to do that. I look forward to that so I get to be preached to and I get to, to grow spiritually. And it really is a great thing for me to be able to go to those events. But Shasta wasn't working any of those days, so she decided to come with me for that conference. And um, I'm grateful that she was able to do that. And as a result of her coming, we had to bring, we got to bring, I shouldn't say had to bring, we got to bring our two daughters with us as well. And the hotel that we stayed with um, there in Springfield, specifically we stayed there because it comes with breakfast and dinner, so we're trying to save money and be good stewards, live cheaply, however it is that you want to say it. But we had finished eating supper one night, and um, Shasta and I were sitting there at the table, and Lainey and London, our two daughters, had stepped into the lobby, which is really right next to the eating area there, almost the exact same rooms, and um, it... It's probably all of 60 seconds that they've been gone. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. Before our oldest daughter comes running up to us trying to tell us that something has happened and something that seems important, she needs to get off her her lips. And we finally gather enough information to learn that London, our two-year-old, has decided to take a ride in the elevator and go exploring the hotel by herself. 
And it's that time that you look up, and we're right there in the lobby of the hotel, and it's a glass elevator, and you see her waving at her mom and dad as she zips up to wherever it is that she's headed. We don't know. Um, I'm expecting, you know, the next thing that I'll see, I'll see her rappelling down the side of the, 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 the hotel building, you know, on the outside of the glass. Who knows where she's going to show up. So I take off up the stairs, which I'm obviously not happy about using the stairs, and I eventually found her standing in the midst of four adults on the fourth floor, all of them being rather upset that I, her father, would allow her to play on the elevator. But y'all have been around, maybe you've got these yourself, these strong-willed, I mean, the, the word really to use is disobedient children who do what? What do they do? They do what they want whenever they want to do it. Well, listen to me. God does what God wants to do whenever he wants to do it, however he wants to do it. And God does what God wants to do, not because he is some bratty toddler that enjoys watching his parents squirm. God does it not because he's bucking authority in some way. God does it because he is the authority. And when God is the authority, he gets to choose how he wants history to unfold. And when you are the authority, you can just decide those things. God gets to do that. Now, God doesn't say it like that As bluntly as I just said it, whenever he responds to Habakkuk, he polishes it up just a tad because he cares about Habakkuk and he wasn't hurt his feelings. But in that response, we see two ways that this can play out. There are two ways that this plays out here in this text. Here's the first way that this can play out. God can crush our pride however God needs to crush our pride. God can crush our pride however God needs to crush our pride. Because look with me now at how God responds to Habakkuk. We're going to skip verses 1 through 3. We're going to come back to it here in just a second. But look at verses 4 and 5. What does it say in your copy of God's Word? It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own, all peoples. In this part of God's response, God is essentially contrasting Habakkuk, who is righteous and who loves God, and is doing the best that he can to follow God with the Chaldeans, this enemy nation that God is going to use to punish Judah. So notice that God does not argue with Habakkuk, and so much of what his complaint was that he was stating back in chapter 1. God doesn't say, no, Habakkuk, you've got it all wrong. I'm really not eternal. God doesn't say that. God doesn't say, no, Habakkuk, you've got it all wrong. I'm really not in control. I'm really not holy. I'm really not just. I haven't really made the world with the creator order. God doesn't deny any of that theology. He doesn't deny any of those attributes that Habakkuk has just pinned on God. Instead, God wants Habakkuk to see that, yes, there is difference between you and them. Yes, you're right. But the biggest difference is that they're people of pride and people who think that by their own effort and by their own advancement, they can somehow make it in life while you're supposed to be a person of faith. Remember, the righteous shall live by faith. And Habakkuk, right now, can I be honest with you, buddy? You're kind of looking more like them than I want you to. You're looking pretty prideful. So in this case, you want to know why God chose to use the wicked nation of the Chaldeans to punish the less wicked people of Judah? We could say at least part of it might be because God needed to teach his people the danger of pride. 
God is looking at Habakkuk, and he's got to remind him of the danger of pride. He's got to remind him that he's not better than anybody else. So the first way this can play out is that God can crush our pride however he wants to. But now the second way that this can play out, and then we'll be done this morning, God can move history toward his end in whatever way he chooses. God can move history toward his end in whatever way that he chooses. And we see that in verses 1, 2, and 3. So let's look at that now. What does it say? Verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So that comes right at the end of Habakkuk's complaint. And Habakkuk kind of summarizes and says, I'm going to chill and I'm going to wait for you to respond to God. So now look at how God first responds. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You notice that God begins to tell Habakkuk about the importance of writing down this vision. He talks about tablets. There's only one other place in the Bible, actually in the Ten Commandments, where it talks about something being written on tablets. But there's an urgency with this message. God wants Habakkuk to write it down. It's almost like God knows that for thousands of years after Habakkuk prophesies, people are still going to need to be reminded of what God has to say. But I want you to notice with me specifically what God says in verse 3. Let's read it again. I know that we've already read it a couple times, but let's read it again. Verse 3. He says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now there are a couple things that you need to know. God is not only telling Habakkuk, that, hey, you're really concerned about the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, and I want you to know that they're going to get what's coming to them as well, which comes in about 80 or 90 years from the point that this is being uttered. But there's something else that I want you to know about this text. God is actually telling Habakkuk to anticipate Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, I don't see that, preacher. Where is that in the text? I don't see that. And you're right, you don't see it. But, but, but think about this. In Hebrew... Verse 3 can also be translated, if he seems slow, wait for him. The context would then be saying after that, he will surely come. He will not delay. And by the way, there's actually historical evidence for it to be translated like that in the Septuagint as well as in Jewish literature. So you know what this means? This means that in the midst of one of the greatest questions that mankind has ever wrestled with, you know what this means? This means that 2,600 years ago all the way up till today, this means that the answer is Jesus Christ. That's what this means. Now you say, but that's not an answer. You know, that's not an answer at all. I want to know, how can God be the God that we just described at the end of chapter 1? How can he have all of those attributes and still, being that kind of a God, use a more wicked people to punish a less wicked people? And you're telling me that God, you're telling me that Jesus Christ is the answer? That doesn't make any sense. That's not an answer. And I say, yes, it is. He is the answer. It's kind of like when a child asks me some type of an incredibly complex answer that I don't even know how to be a complex question. I don't even know where to begin. Like, where do I even start to answer that? I generally just say, hey, trust me. Give it a couple of years. It's finally going to all come together, all right? Just, just trust me on this one. Well, God the Father with Habakkuk is almost like, tell you what, trust me on this one. All of this is leading to the Messiah. 
All of this is taking us to Jesus Christ. And you may not right now agree with the way that I'm leading history. You might think in your mind that you've got a better way. But all of this is bringing about your salvation. All of this is working us and taking us toward the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as Habakkuk is struggling in many ways the same way that we struggle with deep theological philosophical questions about life and life's purpose and and suffering. God's encouragement is not to give him every detail, which is what we want. God's encouragement is to tell him to wait on Jesus Christ. To wait for the Savior. God's encouragement is essentially for us to point us to the cross. That's essentially what God does. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a Christian, that's all you got. That's certainly all that you've got for the world. That's really the only comfort that we have. We don't have slick answers. We don't have slick presentations. I mean, the Bible calls the, God, the, the message that we've embraced foolishness according to the world. Are you aware of that? So we don't have flashy sayings. All we have is Jesus. That's all you got, folks. There's nothing else that you could ever possibly have. And by the way, that's all you need. And when you have Jesus... You may look at the world and you may be frustrated and you may have questions and you may pose these deep questions in your life group or bounce them off of friends. But ultimately, when you have Christ, you can endure, can't you? You can make it. Jesus has imparted peace into your heart and into your life. Now, some of us this morning, I bet, have not experienced that kind of a peace. So rather than questions like this, God, how can you use wicked people to judge a people that are better than them? Or questions like we saw last week. How long do I have to pray before it seems like I can get your attention? Or some of the things that we're going to wrestle through for these next six or seven weeks or however long it takes us to get, to a back, get through a back. Some of these things, rather than, than us seeing them and ultimately being drawn closer to the God of the gospel... Since we haven't trusted in Christ, it seems like these things have driven a wedge between us and God. So the first thing that we have to do, and this will just be my encouragement, is to cast our cares and our anxieties and our, 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 our everything, everything about our lives, everything, about, everything that happens for us, cast it all on the person and the work of Jesus. And here's what we believe. We believe, if I can just start from the beginning, we believe that God created a world that was essentially good, wasn't it? I mean... The Garden of Eden, mankind, Adam and Eve, in good relationship, fellowship with God the Father, walking and talking with God, but that mankind broke that relationship with God. We chose to sin and rebel against God. And as a result, um, you can look out in the world even today and you can see the brokenness, can't you? You can see the suffering, you can see the divorce, you can see the poverty, you can see the disease, the cancer, you can see all of it. All of it is a result of, of us rebelling against God and that relationship being broken. Well, as we work our way through the Old Testament, we find people like Habakkuk, but we find people different than him as well who are anticipating this coming Messiah. And the Messiah would come not to do away with cancer necessarily or not to correct everything immediately, but to offer you a relationship with God so that if you will repent and if you will believe and if you will begin following Jesus Christ, you can be reconciled to God and you can be saved for all of eternity. So we that are Christians have done that. We have repented and we believed and we are awaiting the return of our Savior who hopefully will not tarry but will come back soon. And for some of you, you need to make that decision for the first time. You need to repent, you need to believe, you need to begin following Christ. And if you would be willing to do that right now, it's not 
difficult. It's not complicated. All you have to do is cry it on your heart. And you have to say, God, I want to be reconciled to you. I repent of my sins. I want to cast aside my sinfulness and my, my um, rebellion against you. I want to cast all that aside. And I want to set my eyes squarely on you and begin following you. Now, if you do that right now, there are a couple ways that you can respond. The first way is simply in your worship guide. So on the inside of your worship guide that you received when you walked in this morning, there's a bubble at the top that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus. And if you mark that bubble, you can throw that in the giving baskets, which are going to come by at the end of the service, and we'll contact you this week to talk with you about that. The second way that you can respond is during this next song that we sing. So we're going to stand together, and we're going to sing. And if you'd like to come back and talk with me, I stand at the connect table there in the foyer. I'd love to share with you about what God has done in my life and kind of walk you through what it looks like for you to follow Christ. And then the third way is simply be on your way out. I stand at the, the back door, and if you just want to pass by and grab my hand and say, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus, and I want to hear more about what that looks like, I would love to walk you through that. So I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, we're going to stand and sing together, and I'll be at the Connect table if I can pray for you or share with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, for all that you are and all that you do. And I'm thankful, God, that we get to come together as your people today on the Lord's Day, the day that you have conquered the grave. And we get to celebrate the fact that you would not leave us in our sin, but that you would do everything that it takes in order for us to be reconciled to you. You did everything that it takes. All we have to do is we have to take the faith that you've given us and we just have to cast it toward you. So, Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you, those of us who have already done this, and I thank you for those that are one day going to do this. Maybe they're doing it right now. Maybe they're casting their faith toward you. And my prayer, Lord, is that, is that you would you just be glorified in our lives.